This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the Be Here Now Network, and I am very excited to have my guest today, Mr. Colin McEnroe. Colin, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. So I'm going to read your bio to our listeners so they get a sense of just who Colin McEnroe is in the event they are not familiar, and then I'm really excited to chat with you about a variety of things. Um, Colin McEnroe is allergic to penicillin and host the daily WNPR show, The Colin McEnroe Show, and co-host The Wheelhouse, a weekly WNPR political roundtable. He wrote a column for the Hartford Current from 1982 to 2019, leaving then to start a similar column and newsletter for Heart Media. Recent projects have included columns for Bicycling Magazine and an adaptation of Faust for the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. The Colin McEnroe Show won first place, PRNDI, the Yearly Public Radio Competition Awards in different categories in back-to-back years. First for 2016 Best Interview, Colin's full show conversation with Hal Hallbrook. And in 2017 for Best Public Interest Show, an episode about neo neonaticide, something I'm not even familiar with and probably just pronounced incorrectly. Maybe that'll come up later. In 2019, the show finished in a second place for Best Colin Show. Colin and his staff have also invented radio for the deaf, a means by which the deaf audience can regularly experience a radio show. He is the author of three books in one play, and his work has appeared on the New York Times op-ed page and in Mirabella, Best Life, Cosmopolitan, Forbes, FYI, and Mademoiselle. It is not his fault that only one of those magazines still exists. He has moderated the Connecticut Forum an unprecedented 10 times, most recently with Fred Armisen, I'm very jealous about that, who demonstrated mortifyingly how easy Colin is to impersonate. In 2018, he returned to Yale, his alma mater, to teach in the political science department. His books, columns, magazines, articles, and radio shows have won numerous awards, all of which are in boxes somewhere. Colin, thank you again for being on the show today. You know, whenever I hear uh, somebody introduce me with all my alleged accomplishments, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm reminded I was uh, doing a, a thing at the Bushnell, which is a big auditorium in Hartford, yeah. with James Carville and Mary Madeline, mm. and uh, somebody was out on stage 
doing what you were just doing, Chris, you know, listing my many accomplishments right. uh, prior to bringing me out. And I was sitting backstage next to Carville, and every time another thing would be mentioned, he would kind of whack me on the thigh and go, you're winning, you're winning. <laughs> uh, so whenever I hear that, I think, well, I'm winning again. I love it because I have the tendency, you know, I have a, a full bio, and I prefer when people read shorter ones myself, mm-hmm. um, which I know you gave me the option to do before we recorded, but, you know, uh, credit where credit's due. But every time someone reads a bio before I give a talk um, and then I come out on stage, it's the same thing. And I, the first thing I say to the audience is like, but really, I'm still just some punk rock, hip hop loving kid who watches, you know, The Simpsons and The Office and, you know, loves inappropriate humor. And that's who I am. So anyways, I understand what you're saying. A side note for listeners and Colin, I don't think I ever mentioned this to you. I've been listening to you on the radio for, I mean, as far back as I can remember, um, not saying you're old by any means, uh, but I remember I used to work in um, Essex, Connecticut at this little place called From You Flowers that then later became FTE.com, a call center. And I think it was like noon or one o'clock you had hosted a show. I think you co-hosted it. But this is back in late 90s, maybe. Um, yeah, that would have been actually it was a, an afternoon drive show that went from three to, oh, three. to, to six. Okay. But yeah, no. People, I because I've done I've been on the radio since 1992. So yeah. people often say that you know they were strapped into car seats uh, screaming, you know, while their parents <laughs> forced them to listen to me. And I, I always say well, you were 13 years old by then. You shouldn't have been in a car seat. But anyway, uh, no, I I know this phenomenon anyway. So well, I love it because part of the reason I loved your show, aside from it being entertaining, was. That reminds me at three o'clock because I would usually leave at four thirty or five. So when you'd come on, I'd say, all right, day's almost over. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from being a very entertaining show. So, Colin, let's talk about there's a number of things um, that I'm excited to explore with you. Uh, let's kind of go back and start at the basics back in the day. You mentioned um, growing up as a latchkey Protestant. Why not begin there and tell us a little bit about that? All right. So my parents had no observable interest in spirituality or religion. My father was a lapsed Catholic, although that he wasn't. I mean, that's sort of the official, you know, it's like the census designation, lapsed Catholic. What he really was was a heretic. You know, he really wanted uh, to get into arguments with uh, God, if possible, but um, anybody of a similarly high rank uh, about religion. He read a lot about it. He thought a lot about it, but he was always kind of angry about it. And he didn't belong to any organized church. And my mother was sort of a lapsed congregationalist, which is a much shorter lapse to get there. And so neither. And so when I was in third grade, I said to them, you know, uh, I'd like my friends all go to church. You know, uh, this was, you know, around 1960 or so. And so uh, maybe you could you take me to church? And they said they looked at me kind of funny and they said, OK, yeah, we'll take you to church. Well, they meant that literally they would take me to church, let me out of the car and drive <laughs> Um, and so they would pick out either arbitrarily or a resu- as a result of my father's vast, uh, resentful, hostile reading uh, and research, they would pick out a denomination for me oh. and and just leave me at that church. So I was a Presbyterian for a while. I was a Universalist for a while. I was a Congregationalist. But they wouldn't go. Uh, they'd go home and smoke cigarettes and read the newspapers and then come back and get me. That's so interesting. So – 
you end up going to Yale and American religion is part of your major. And I know you said that that shaped a lot of the thinking or the way you think in life. Um, I mean, maybe if you want to, I know that's a big jump from childhood to college, but if you want to fill in uh, any gaps along that way and then talk about that experience at Yale and and uh, why you chose American religion as part of your major and, and how, in fact, it did shape your thinking. Yeah, so what I was, I was an American studies major with special concentration in religion and philosophy. And, you know, I mean, one thing that's going to emerge over the course of this conversation is I kind of got locked into a little bit that mode of being an observer, but not quite a full participant in things. So that was certainly the case when I went to churches to which the rest of my family did not belong. And, And at Yale, I was not, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there were some, I had friends at Yale who were headed to divinity school yeah. after Yale. Um, I wasn't, although I took courses up at the divinity school even as an undergraduate. But I was always kind of more – I was fascinated, and I still am, by religious faith and by spirituality. Mm. And, and But but always kind of a bit on an observer basis. So, yeah, that fit very well into my studies there. Uh, and, um, so, and I also believe that you can't understand America without understanding religion. You can't understand America without an understanding, first of all, the people who came here mm. and all of their complex attitudes about the relationship between God and humans, and then how that's played itself out across the story of America. So yeah, yeah. I mean, studying the Puritans, <laughs> uh, studying Calvinist theology, uh, all that kind of stuff. It 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 really is true that it. I don't think a week goes by to this day where I don't think about that or or try that approach out to something that's going on in American life in 2019. Yeah, I was just gonna say so apropos for what we are seeing now more than ever um, and looking at religion as an underlying theme of so much of this, um, I'm guessing. Yeah. Although one thing that I would say, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I get it. But um, one thing that's different now. So first of all, in 1960, John F. Kennedy gets elected president. Right. And that time, the great religious historian, uh, Sidney Alstrom, who was one of my professors in college, said that that was the end of the American theocracy, that America had been run by white Protestant men for all of its history. And now this Catholic, amid great controversy, gets elected president among among claims that he will be more answerable to the pope than he will be to the American electorate, all that kind of stuff. So that happens. And, and Alstrom said, well, it's over. The, that stranglehold has been broken. And he was wrong. I mean, yep. basically, Kennedy got elected and then we went right back to white Protestants. But here in this cycle, if you look around, I mean, I don't think any of them are going to be nominees. But Tulsi Gabbard, for example, who grew up in, I think what is fair to say is a cult. I don't use that word usually because it's so pejorative. But she grew up in something I'd be comfortable calling a cult. And she's now uh, identifies to some degree as a Hindu. Kamala Harris, I think, also grew up. One of her parents, the more active parent, her mother uh, was uh, of Indian origin. And I think she grew up somewhat uh, Hindu. Marion Williamson, of course, comes out of the Course in Miracles uh, movement. So suddenly, I mean, oh, and uh, Michael Bennett, 
grew up, um, he was raised both Jewish and uh, Protestant. His father was Protestant, his mother was Jewish. So he grew up kind of raised in both traditions. So, you know, at least in this vast pool of Democratic candidates right now, there are some people who are a little bit more religiously diverse than what we're used to. Yes, and that I'm very appreciative of that. I've had the um, pleasure of speaking with Marianne at a number of conferences and um, to see that she is running. Um, you know, on the one hand, I am a fan. Uh, I don't identify as anything specifically. I read from all the great wisdom traditions and find um, just fascinating uh, information and insights in them, Course in Miracles being one of them. Um, I appreciate Marianne. She's a very lovely woman. On a personal level, the work she does in relation to the course book itself, which I know is a very dense book for anyone who has not read it, um, I think she kind of waters it down and doesn't do it justice. But her as a human being, lovely woman, you make a very good point. What I was going to say was um, I actually just watched two days ago, and I'm guessing you've seen this uh, or maybe even talked about on your show, uh, the film on Netflix documentary called The Great Hack. Well, I haven't seen this yet. No. Oh, okay. So I recommend it. I'm sure it'll be a great topic for your show. And while that does uh, talk more about the elections and technology <laughs> and the way that you know that plays into society, it was a real eye opener for me. Um, I, I mean, a lot of it is if if you're in the know, you understand that the government has your information and knows pretty much everything about you. But at the end, they're talking about. Uh, certain people that were persuadable and they would look at their backgrounds and uh, target them with these, you know, very, a lot of them were jihadist uh, propaganda or things that kind of would push them one way or another. And it showed how it really started pushing this Christian agenda. And there's a particular company and it's, I can't remember the name right now, but um, they, they're essentially behind it. And it was just amazing to me how that, that all played out. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this once you uh, have a chance to check it out. I highly recommend it. Um, and as another side note, for our audience, Colin uh, is not just, um, of course, someone who talks about spirituality. Uh, he has a lot of background in it, but his show is wonderful discussing what I love, Colin, about your show is you'll do a whole show. I think once you did it on towels, maybe, or just, we did. Yeah, like completely random topics. We, but we, some, we sometimes like the towel show we did because it was such a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so we sometimes will challenge ourselves that way. To, like, can we do a show that's really interesting about something that's such a flimsy concept that's actually attractive to us as opposed to repellent to us? Most shows would be repelled by that idea. Right. And it works most of the time. Like, I think it's awesome. And when it's not, that's what I love is everyone on the team there is, you know, you're very transparent. So um, <laughs> I love that about your show. So it's not to dwell on politics, um, but since you, you know, you mentioned the 60s and Nixon and here we now do have, as you mentioned, a bit of a more diverse group of individuals uh, in the Democratic primary. What difference, if any, do you see now um, happening in America than you did in the 60s? Which, I mean, I was just out in San Francisco, visited Haight-Ashbury. I was the tourist. Um, but it was cool to be out there and, and know, like, 
or just you know walk down this road that had so much culture and history and drive by the Grateful Dead's house and um, you know I think of Ram Das who this network is hosted and you know this big just explosion of counterculture happening and you know now we have Trump in office and all of this racism and other misogyny and you know a million other descriptive words that has been there kind of lying uh, you know in the woodwork uh, is coming up and I just saw a Facebook post the other day of someone running again I don't remember where but for like a governor and it says make America white again and it was a real like a real billboard and I don't know. So what are your thoughts? What what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's always risky to generalize about a, a moment or an era. Of course. But I, I think it's somewhat fair to say that anyway, that that the 60s and early 70s, although they were in a lot of ways a terrifying time. Yes. I mean, there were like bombs going off all over America. I mean, really, like a lot yeah. uh, in the early 70s. But I mean, another thing that was happening, particularly uh, in the late 60s, was the introduction to and the the acceptance of a wide range of influences, uh, influences that had not been significant before that. So the idea that you would um, know people who were embracing uh, religion that that came from Asia and music that came from Asia mm-hmm. and that you would know people who are participating in pan-African movements and wearing dashikis and stuff like that. I mean, really, if you'd go back to 55 or 60, that just, that just wasn't happening happening. It's very difficult, I think, for people who didn't live through it to understand how monochromatic, how homogeneous uh, culture was in America. So, I mean, it's easy to romanticize the 60s, and we do all the time, and more than we should. But that part is true. And it is true that now feels at times like a reaction, uh, as if people, uh, certain people in this country are saying, well, that's gone too far. And we've lost track of this essentially, you know, Anglo-Saxon uh, weight past that we had. Uh, and and we've put everything else, all these influences flowing in from all over the globe on a par with our white heritage. And that has been a mistake and we've got to do something about it. I mean, I think that is fueling uh, uh, some anyway uh, of these unappetizing currents uh, in our politics today. Yeah, very much agreed. And I know, of course, economy plays into it. And and, and you make a good point. It's very hard to generalize. And um, But I do appreciate your, your two cents on that for sure. Um, you actually made me think of when you were saying like it was not verbatim, but, you know, it's hard to, unless you were there to completely understand it. Um, I was co-facilitating a workshop with Damian Eccles, um, who's a friend. And for those who don't know, he's one of the West Memphis Three, which was a very famous uh, case of him and two other gentlemen in um, West Memphis that were accused of a very heinous uh, murder of three eight-year-old boys. And later, 18 years later, released on an Alford plea. And there were, HBO did a three-part documentary series called Paradise Lost. And then um, Peter Jackson did a follow-up documentary called West of Memphis. And it got a lot of national attention from anyone, including Johnny Depp, to Henry Rollins and Chuck D. And just a lot of people. And the reason I mention that is uh, one, one of the workshops I did with Damien, he was talking about how no one 
can understand. Like, you know, they asked about how how is it when you're released? It must be such a a, a sense of um, freedom and relief. And um, and he said, I, I don't even know how to begin to answer that because unless you've been in that situation there's no context around which you would even be able to begin to understand what is happening. And I don't know why I just went on that side tangent, but came up for me and that's what I do on my show. I just share whatever comes up. So that I'm going to use to segue into a piece you did for men's health, coming back circling into spirituality. And you talked about whether it was possible to acquire spirituality as an act of will. And I know that you've mentioned you've done things like fire ceremonies um, and other things, although the fire ceremony is somehow the only thing you remember at the moment. Um, but what's your take on that? What are your thoughts about acquiring spirituality as an act of will? Well, I, I should say that, you know, on that um, uh, drive time radio show that you used to listen to. Yeah. Uh, because I was granted great license and because I treated it as a pretty open-ended thing. I would talk uh, about all kinds of things like this. I mean, this is a drive-time radio show on an AM station where they had like Rush Limbaugh and stuff like that. Right. But I, I would often talk about spirituality, and I think it all started there, that I started talking on the air about how I really felt like I had no spirituality, and I felt mm. spiritually empty, and I wondered if there were some way to fix that just by intention. And then I was also at that time a contributing editor at Men's Health, and so I, I mentioned this to them. They said, oh yeah, you should do that article, and you should go and like do really spiritual things and see if anything catches on. And so I did. I, I, as I say, I don't, as you say, I don't really remember a lot of those <laughs> things. It was a long time ago. But I, I you know, and I, I obviously the more conscious you become of it, the more self-conscious you become about it, the less likely it is that you're going to have any genuine experience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, I mean, the counter argument is if you want to catch fly balls, go stand in center field. Don't sit in the dugout because there's not any fly balls coming there. So I, I think in a way, you know, going out and doing some of that stuff and engaging, once again, it's very much part of this almost parallel play that I've been doing all, all my life. I was I was interested as an observer and as a visitor and kind of a spiritual tourist, uh, but I didn't stay with anything for very long. Right. I will say that night of the fire ceremony, I really had like, you know, every once in a while you do have these experiences that are, they feel very profound and kind of bone shaking. And, and I certainly did have that. Uh, you know, at this fire ceremony out in a very deserted part of eastern Connecticut uh, on the edge of a lake. Mm. And, and uh, I, you know, it was at that moment anyway, um, it felt very big. Yeah. And, and similarly, in the way I write and approach my own spiritual life, uh, even spirituality is a word um, I know can have its stigmas, but uh, I don't adhere to any specific path or tradition. I find for me, it works more as uh, something that's a direct experience. There's a, a great writer called Andrew Harvey, a uh, mystic scholar who calls it the pathless path. And if anything, I think that resonates most in my own life. Um, I know you've, you've read some of my work and mm -hmm. obviously I talk about having quote unquote spiritual experiences in very unorthodox settings. And that's for me very important to relay, uh, especially because a lot of my writing and, and work is with younger people, young adults, teenagers, 
um, who are skeptical, which I think is a good thing, um, a healthy sense of skepticism. But one can be uh, overly skeptical, myself very much included. I was quite jaded when I was younger towards the idea of religion or spirituality. And so to this day, you know, after similar to you, kind of um, exploring various things and never really sticking with one particularly, uh, I look around my apartment and, you know, the, most people would walk in here and not say that or guess that some spiritual, you know, author or whatever lives here. And, and that's fine with me because I'm happy and I do feel some semblance of a connection to something deeper uh, that for me... Uh, I don't want to say it gives my life more meaning, but it just, uh, I don't know, purpose, passion, those are words that are coming up in relation to that. So in your case, all these years later, and I know this is a big question, you ask a million people, you get a million different answers, but what today, at least, do you think spirituality is? It's a really good question or at least it's a question that's difficult to answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 boy, I wish I had a really ready-made answer to that. <laughs> what I would Sorry say, to drop that on you. <laughs> no, no, you know, well, for me anyway, spirituality yes. is, you know, in a kind of Rilke sense, mm. it's living with questions more than it is living with certainties. I don't know what spiritual certainty would be like. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I for uh, a number of years was, pretty heavily involved with a church uh, that's here in Hartford, uh, and the pastor, Nancy Butler, and I had become very, very close. She was dying of ALS, and I just kind of became bonded to her during that journey. I mean, bonded in a really special and very intense way. She had spiritual certainty. She Mm -hmm. knew she was going to heaven. She absolutely knew it, didn't doubt it. Every day from the time she got up to the time she went to bed, you know, she really had a very strong sense of, of communion with, with some higher power. Uh, and I mean, she had, uh, as a, a Christian, she had a very exact language for who that higher, higher power was and how she was attached to that higher power and the role that Jesus played uh, in it. And, you know, I just, I, I used to, I mean, you can't envy a person who's dying of ALS. It's one of the worst diseases in the world. Right. And I certainly didn't. But I did sometimes think, boy, it must be great when you don't have ALS to feel that way, to have that level of certainty and certainty about a fairly benign set of outcomes, you know? Um, And and I don't, I don't have that and I'm never going to have that. Spirituality for me is searching, questing, asking a, a lot of things, wondering about a lot of things and being, I think it is fair to say that I'm very attracted to and, uh, transfixed by the mysteries, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I I I know that there are mysteries. I know that there are things that really don't resolve themselves very easily if what you use is a very empirical, earthbound way of thinking about them. So I'm always going to be attracted to those things and aware of them right. and prepared to to think and feel about them. But I, I don't have any orthodoxy, and I don't think I ever will. Yeah, I think we're in a very similar place. Something uh, that I try to live by, and I think it might even come from the Zen tradition, but it talks about when you think you know, that's when you're the farthest away. But then I hear you speak of this woman, you know, Nancy Butler, and who am I to say 
that she didn't know, you know, and didn't have that knowledge. And maybe she is in heaven if such a place exists. Like, I, I obviously don't know. I don't have that certainty. Um, I try to be a good person and I do have basic practices I do that help me be a more compassionate human towards myself and others. Um, and also I feel more connected to this living organism that is earth. But at the end of the day, uh, when people ask, you know, questions like that to me, I, I don't know either. You know, it, it is a highly individualized thing. Um, something I did learn from one of my teachers, Ram Das. he says spirituality is a very individual process. It's not true that everyone is meant to follow one path. Uh, you have to follow your truth. Again, not verbatim, but something to that effect. And I certainly agree with that, And at least from my experience. And that's how I always, that's my clause or uh, what I say in my books and talks and workshops is that's what works for me. And, you know, I'm not telling you what to do or what to believe. Now, speaking of Nancy and um, your experience with the church, you also had a, an experience on 9-11 um, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Um, I would love to hear about that. All right. Well, this actually sort of stretches out over a certain amount of time. So 9-11 sure. happens. And actually, at that time, because I was listening to that radio, I was hosting that radio show that you used to listen to. And so at that point, I mean, the nation is just in terror and convulsion and chaos. And there's a lot of, of xenophobia kicking up, you know, like every single Muslim, every single person of Arab descent, everybody with a strange last name, they're all our enemies. And I was spending a lot of time just on the air trying to quell those kinds of thoughts and trying to help report the news. And um, we were, at, you know, staying on late at night. Uh, because people had so many concerns. And then eventually I went down to Ground Zero uh, and uh, broadcast from New York about it. And during that whole time, I didn't really have any time to take care of my own feelings or think mm -hmm. about them or anything. Right. I was just like doing, I was also doing a lot of writing about it at the time, but I never really took care of myself. And then, so it gets to be like October, late October, and I suddenly descend into the darkest place I have ever been in my life. I mean, it is just like a black beast has seized me. And I, I mean, I could go into details, but it took too much time, but I'm just completely miserable. Uh, and I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to stop feeling that way. And I've, and it's just terrifying to me because I've never, I, you know, I mean, mostly I've been a pretty balanced person for most of my life. Of sure. course but not like this. So now I'm just a wreck and I'm miserable and I'm frightened all, from the time I get up in the morning to the time that I get to bed. I'm just scared and I don't know what I'm afraid of. And it's just going on and on. And I don't know how I can live this way. And at one point I got, I was back in New York and uh, a friend of mine, the novelist Luann Rice, a very good friend, she knew how sick I was at that moment. And she, was, she says, meet me at the Hungarian pastry shop. So there's this place up in Morningside Heights uh, called – and I think it just is called the Hungarian pastry shop. And you go there and you have these – these excellent pastries and I don't know, they're, it's a thing. Just take my word for it. Gotcha. So, <laughs> so we go there and we have the pastries and then we walk across the street and right across the street is the cathedral of St. John the divine. And so I walk into this building and I instantly feel better for the first time since I started to feel spiritually sick. I mean, not all the way better, but better. <laughs> it's, I'm so desperate that I'm actually pressing my hands against the stone walls wow. uh, of the cathedral <clears throat> just hoping I can feel better. 
And I did. And uh, Paul Winter, it just so happened, Paul Winter, who's a musician from Connecticut, whom I, I've known for years and who does play a lot of very spiritual and naturalistic music. He's rehearsing his solstice concert, his legendary solstice concert there at that moment. Yeah. And Paul and I knew each other. So like during a little break, I could go over and say hi. And I just started to feel better because of that building, because I was in that building and it had something in it, you know, just maybe just the accumulation uh, of all the prayers and spiritual energy people had poured into it. And it was the beginning, just the beginning of my getting better. But I, anytime I'm in New York and I'm anywhere near there, I go to that, I go back there and I just walk around and it's, it's an amazing place. But I mean, I don't know if it's an amazing place for everybody. Sure. It's an amazing place for me. It's it is and it still feels that way. I still feel like, yeah, this is the place where I feel kind of cared for. And I mean, I'm really not the kind of person who if I'm traveling around France, I need to go to every cathedral or I mean, I'm not one of those people. Yeah. It's this place. Who knows why? But for me, if I have any kind of relationship with God, that's where God is. That's like where God's office is or something. Just for me, not for right. everyone. I absolutely love that. And, and you know, I, I've been to Rome and visited uh, the Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica. And, um, you know, just being there in the Sistine Chapel, uh, I don't have much of an identification with or really any with Catholicism. I do appreciate mystic Christianity and we'll talk about that in a minute. Cause I know you've had some very amazing conversations uh, around that with celebrated individuals, but um, I did feel a very deep resonance within me being in these places. And I, you know, I, w it was actually that trip was pre really any interest in spirituality for me. I just, I was in Rome, always wanted to go to Rome, had an opportunity to stay with someone for free. And it was an incredible, incredible, just it's some very similar to what you were saying. Um, and then I'm thinking about a few years back, I went to Hawaii to one of Ram Dass's retreats where, you know, people go to these two times a year and it's filled with great teachers like Ram Dass and Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, a lot of Buddhist and, and Hindu teachers that if you're into that thing, um, it's great. People love it. It's kind of like this little bliss bubble. And it was my first time going there. And uh, Krishna Das, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's a Grammy-nominated kirtan musician, which is a Hindu mm -hmm. form of um, basically devotional music. It's it's called bhakti yoga, uh, which is singing in in Hindu or sometimes in English uh, to the various deities from that tradition. And I get there, and the first day is great, and then I go into this very dark place. And I'm like, what is going on? I, I was just going through a divorce. And I think that allowed me and I'm not comparing this divorce to 9-11 by any means. I want to make that clear. But um, I was in this very dark space. And I sat with Mirabai Bush, who I just actually did a talk with at the Mark Twain house not that long ago. And she co-authored Ram Dass's latest book, Wonderful Woman. And, you know, she said, we, we go through these experiences, it's not quite the dark night of the soul, like St. John of the Cross would have said, but it is what it is. And, and so I went in after that dinner and Krishna Das was playing and he played one of my favorite songs, the third song in, and I just started weeping like a, 
ugly cry to the point where I had to walk and there was it was on a beach and I could still hear his music perfectly. But it was one of the most cathartic, like, again, for quote unquote, God connected experiences I have had. Um, so I, I, I completely understand what you're saying about location and areas. And and like you said, that was for me. And I unfortunately have not been back since, but hope to one day sooner than later. Um, now, mentioning the mystic elements of Christianity, I know that you've had uh, interviews with Thomas Moore and Elaine, I mispronounce her name. Is it Pagels or Pagels? Pagels. Um, and I very much appreciate both of their works because they come from the Christian tradition, but are also very open. And especially Elaine talks about the Gnostic Gospels, which I'm a big fan of. Um, mm-hmm. I think the Gospel of Thomas is probably my favorite, favorite book uh, out of all of that. But I would love to hear... Um, some of your takeaways from those conversations or any insights or um, anything that you would like to share from those. Right. Well, I mean, I, I really do. Um, I haven't talked to Thomas Moore in a while, but he's done shows with me. I don't know. I'd say four or five times. In fact, I, he was even on WTIC with me like ages ago. Wow. So, you know, I've always, what I like about his work is that it's situated in real life. Yes. You know, that everything is kind of about how to be a person, but also have a soul. Right. And, you know, it's, and, and so, you know, if you're the kind of person who has a little bit of trouble with the abstractions of pure mysticism, he, he doesn't do that. You know, right. it really is all about sort of recognizable human situations. But then, yeah, then, then, the, everything that he thinks about the soul and devotion and religion is it, it's like your parachute and your life preserver and your it's like all this stuff you know it's like you're a ghostbuster and you got all that stuff on your back that can right. help you deal with uh, with everything that life throws at you and so that's the thing I like about him and we just seem to get along too I mean whenever he's been in the studio where I'm sitting a bunch of times and it just I don't know. We I, we get along. And, you know, Elaine's work I had read for a really long time, and I had never talked to her until I, it was within the last six months that we did this show. And and she wrote um, uh, this book called, I believe, Why Religion, and it's about uh, how she confronted religion, having been a like me, kind of somebody who studied religion more than really experiencing it. Uh, but her husband, first her her baby son and then her husband died in very short order, very short succession. And, and it was all about basically, well, what did religion really have to offer her at that point? And being who she is, she doesn't come up with. So once again, it's, it's uh, very much rooted in this world. All right. So here we are in this world and these things, inevitably horrible, sad, challenging things uh, happen to us. What have we got? What like in the whole? If we're Ghostbusters and we got our coveralls and then those big things that they've got on their backs, what's there? You know, is there anything there that can help us? And and so yeah, I loved all the Gnostic Gospel stuff, and to me, it's a much more exciting version uh, or a bit much more familiar uh, and comforting version of Christianity than the canonical Orthodox uh, stuff that, that for the most part we've gotten. But here, talking to her about this other stuff, I, I did feel like she has wandered 
through alone in a dark wood herself and, and, and asked questions and hasn't always a hundred percent gotten answers. Yeah. And I, I absolutely love that. I couldn't agree more. It reminds me of a quote from uh, one of my friends in Toronto. He's a wonderful writer. His name is Jeff Brown. And we have a very similar take on spirituality. And he says uh, that, yes, it's true. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, but it is also true that we are human beings having a human experience. And I think that's so important because often, especially in the West, spirituality uh, can become an addiction or a means of aversion in its own right. People come at it from, as you said, the, the overly mystic um, state, or, or maybe you didn't say that, but you used the word uh, people that have issue with you know the heavy mysticism. Um, and that is something that I've experienced directly, uh, and it is a wonderful experience, yet I also have recognized that it is, uh, for me as well, I'm, I'll throw myself under the bus, I have used it as a means of escape. There were times where I'd sit down on that meditation cushion, and it was very head-centered, not full-body-centered, and it was just a mental spirituality, something to transcend this body, and looking at the body as um, something that's a, a form of hindrance, when how could that be the case? You know, like, I, I do not believe, and again, just me, but that we're here by accident. I don't know the exact reason why I am a fan of physics and science and love learning about, you know, quarks and subatomic particles and the evolution of atoms to molecules, cells, organisms, all of that neat stuff. And there, the relation between that and the ancient rishis uh, that wrote the Vedas and the Upanishads. But at the end of the day, just recognizing that we're still human beings. We still have feelings like after the Buddha attained enlightenment, after Christ became Christ, you know, they were still human. They still felt, they still experienced this being in a body. So I appreciate you saying that about them. That's a big part of the reason why I also enjoy their work. Now, there's something that I'm definitely very curious about um, asking about, because you've mentioned that there are two women, both dead, with whom you still converse. One of them, Nancy, and I'm guessing that's Nancy, whom you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. and um, India Blue, uh, who is a Wiccan. I would love to hear about that. All right. Well, India Blue was a very prominent Wiccan leader around here in Connecticut sure. uh, in mm, the 90s and 80s. And I got to know her. She's also a photographer. Uh, I got to know her in a lot of different contexts. Um, and we became, you know, I wouldn't say that we were close exactly, but uh, she's also the person who would take my picture for like a book jacket or something. Sure. Um, and, and um, but she, the Wiccan stuff we talked a lot about. Uh, and, um, and so, I, I mean, this is not a really depressing story, but um, the there was just a day where it was actually at the beginning of this century. It was probably around 2003, 2004, and it's sort of the way that you get news these days. So I was 
I think newly separated from uh, my marriage was coming to an end and I uh, was in this apartment uh, and I got on the on my email that morning and there were like all these emails that first said, oh, I'm so sorry, I, you must be devastated, blah, 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 blah. And I just like I didn't know what they were about. Uh, and like I had to read five of them until I kind of understood that India had died and she had died in a car crash and she'd run into a tree on the highway, which is like also a very weird way for a Wiccan to die. Yeah. And I, I just and I like I say, say, I didn't really think of us as really close and I just fell to the ground and started sobbing and it was like like an elephant had its foot on my back like I couldn't get up off the floor. I mean, it really physically felt that way. Like there was this thing kind of crushing me and I couldn't get up and I went up like I had to cancel like everything that day and I never do that. Like I'm a radio person. I get on the air, you know, horrible things are happening to me. Yeah. Uh, I guess I maybe made it onto the air, but I had to cancel like a public appearance and, and, um, and I just didn't even know why that was. But since then, um, and sometimes with the assistance of, of people involved, then involved in the Wiccan movement who knew her, I, I, I at least have sort of come to realize that there is some some bond and it feels like a bond that persists. So, yeah, I still talk to her. I mean, so it's been, you know, uh, it, it's been 15, 16 years since she died. I still talk to her sometimes in the early stages I would sometimes thought think I saw her you know like maybe driving slowly down a road and you go by a bus stop and there's six people and one of them's absolutely India and then I would realize no I just I must have projected that somehow but um, but yeah I still talk to her I still talk to Nancy I, I probably talked to Nancy more about spiritual questions and with India partly once again one of the cool things about Wicca yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about Wicca, but let's just pretend I do. <laughs> um, but one of the cool things about Wicca is it, there's a practical quality to it. You know, yeah. it, it deals with a lot of everyday stuff. So it is literally the case that on a few occasions I have lost something like my wallet or something. And I'll spend like 45 minutes trying to find it. And then I'll finally say to India, where is it? Just <laughs> Where's my wallet? You know, and it's actually what's happened a couple of times a little bit disturbingly is I've looked in a place where I thought I'd kind of looked before and now I can see it and it's there. I can find it. So, I mean, I know I'm like a complete lunatic, but um, but anyway, that's what that relationship is, that I do feel very much like there's a bond and it's a bond that has persisted and intensified really past the time of one of our deaths. So, yeah, I do. I talk to India and I talk to Nancy and um, with Nancy, who was at the time of her death, I would probably say. You know, if she were to make a list of her 10 biggest concerns, my spirituality would have been on that list, which is sort of an amazing thing because we don't only known each other for about two years. And she had a lot of people in her life who, I mean, as a pastor and everything else who were very important to her and dependent on her. But she decided that the relationship, the bond that we'd formed was really important. And she wanted she wanted me to not go drift off the path after she died. And so. I would say, by the way, that I kind of have drifted off the path a little bit, but I do talk to her and and I do sometimes feel like she's watching or, you know, I I don't know. I mean, now a rational person would say, well, that's just because you can't let go, right? You can't let go of her. So you've decided that you're in this kind of communion, even though she's dead. And, And if somebody said that to me, I wouldn't be able to say, 
well, you're wrong. Sure. But it's, but that's not how it feels to me. I mean, with the India thing, I almost do feel like I would say, well, no, you can't, you don't understand. There's like something happening here. But, you know, with Nancy, uh, it is, I've had a lot of trouble. Uh, like, I, just a quick story. So yeah. when she, when you have ALS, there comes a point where you can't talk anymore. I mean, it's one of the things that happens as you're getting closer and closer to death. But you might be alive for a while and not literally able, you just don't have a voice anymore. You can't, you know, diaphragm won't propel the air through your vocal and so as we were getting closer to that, as she was getting closer to that, I said to her, when when that happens and you want to give a sermon, you know, you, I'll work with you. I'll be your voice. I'll do, I'll do your last sermon for you. Uh, but, you know, we'll figure it out together. And so there's all this technology now that you can use to, for a person to use that where they can even kind of, you know, type things and a voice comes out and everything. But so using all kinds of stuff and, and a lot of just, um, I don't know, just hand signals and stuff. Well, <clears throat> she wrote with me a sermon, which I delivered with her in her wheelchair next to me. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty good at finding ways to describe things that happened in my life. Yeah. To this day, I have no way of describing what that was, like how that felt, what it was like. I mean, it just was a profound experience that didn't really have any other analogs for me anywhere else. So whatever our relationship was, you know, whatever she was to me as a spiritual teacher, yeah, I'm not really willing to let go of it. I've never had anything like it. And I doubt I'm going to have anything like it. And so, so we do talk. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, I could be certifiable. Who knows? Oh, well, then I'm right there with you. So first of all, thank you for sharing that story. Because even just hearing you explain how, what happened and the fact that you can't put it into the words, I certainly felt that. Um, as weird as that might sound. Um, because I've had experiences as well hard to put into, I mean, beyond being able to put into words, not a lot, but, um, a few that sound a little similar to that. And I too have two, uh, friends that passed on. One was sadly, uh, just a few months back, uh, or well earlier this year. And uh, he was from Hartford, a wonderful man named Darren drum who created a credible center called Toivo on Franklin street, um, that serves, the population offering plenty of mind, body, spirit practices. Um, and this was a vision he had and created from the ground up. And um, and he, he passed away um, in his 40s, unfortunately. Very sad. But I still talk to him and I still feel as if similar, like I can at times feel him. And to, to the point of it's just because you can't let go, maybe. Uh, like you, I don't know that I'd argue it, but at the same time, the one thing I do know is that everything, and not to get all woo-woo, but everything is made of energy, and that's what sustains the body. And what happens to that energy once the body ceases, I have no idea. I'm not, even, you know, I'm not going to conjecture on that. All the religions have their take on it. Um, I have no idea because, though I've come close to dying, I haven't crossed over or whatever. But that's to me how I look at it. Is you know who knows what happens to that energy. And I certainly feel both Darren and my other freight friend, uh, Kate Bartolotta's presence, um, quite, quite closely at times. And I talk to them as well. So if we're getting, um, committed, we'll, we'll be getting committed together, Colin. So 
Sounds great. Yes. So um, we just have a couple minutes. Um, let me ask you like maybe one or two more questions. Um, first off, about you. You are a very diverse person, and that's part of why I love your show. You just explore so many things, and you're curious by nature, very similar to me. What would you say some of your great passions in life are? Hmm. Um, well, uh, what are my great passions in life? Well, I mean, one of my great passions in life is kind of what you just said, eclecticism. I mean, mm. the idea that every day, you know, and it is sort of true, you know, the show well enough to know uh, almost every day we're on some kind of learning journey. You know, yeah. we're we're trying to figure out some new thing that we've never understood or talked about before. So, I mean, just to be able to do that all the time is a real privilege. I mean, it kind of means one of the things that I've sort of underst I understand about myself now is that I'm sort of a half an inch deep on a huge number of things as opposed to being six foot deep on any one thing. You know, it's sort of Isaiah Berlin talked about the fox and the hedgehog. Well, I'm much more of a fox than a, than a hedgehog sure. that way. So that's sort of a passion, that idea that every day and, and the, that that I don't know, my father used to talk all the time about Renaissance men, you know, right. and that's sort of I don't know, it's uh, I think kind of a discredited notion at that point at this point. But that idea anyway, that, yeah, you do you do try to figure out as much as you can about everything if yeah. you possibly can. So th that's sort of a passion for me. I don't know, probably the secret passion. It's not that big a secret, but but music pro means more to me than I probably am able to let play out in my life. But I mean, when I'm really, really animated and excited, it's usually because of working on something uh, that involves music. Um, I, I, you know, of everything, yeah. of everything that there is out there. And there's so much, you know, I mean, every day you can just drink in all this different stuff, but probably the most consistent thing uh, has been music. I mean, Steve Metcalf, who is a great musician and somebody who's worked a lot with me on various projects and on this show too. Um, and he's a guy with just a tremendous amount of musical learning. Yeah. Every once in a while, he'll say, you realize, Colin, you are a music nerd too, right? <laughs> um, and, and I think that is true. Same here, full-on music nerd. Um, I am not one to buy expensive things. I live a pretty modest life, but my one exception is my equipment and my, you know, my amps, my guitars, they, you know, I'm, I try not to be attached to too much, but those are things I love. So speaking of music, can you give me, and this is a very difficult one, maybe top three, either albums, artists, um, or even if it's not top three, three that come to mind, like right off the bat for you. Yeah. It's always changing, but I mean, of course, certainly, um, you know, so I'll try to be as diverse as I possibly can. All right. Um, so, so, you know, if you want something perfect, kind of bloom, the Miles Davis album, kind of blue. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't know how that could be more perfect. Sure. And it's certainly, you know, it, it, it is the place that it occupies would tend to point to the idea of it becoming this kind of tired cliche or this thing that you just like don't want to hear anymore, but it's the opposite. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, so, uh, I'll start there. Um, so now I'll do a kind of embarrassing one. I've got like a lot of sort of embarrassing ones, yeah, but, I, but, but actually it kind of fits into our conversation too. I've had this sort of kind of lifelong fascination with Todd Rundgren, uh, uh -huh. 
as you probably know, Todd Rundgren went through and probably is still in a, a, um, a period of spiritual questing. And some of the albums are almost entirely consumed with uh, his questions uh, about spirituality. Yeah. But I, I like him for all kinds of other different reasons, too. And, and so in terms of somebody who can, you know, if I start like messing around with a streaming service and I just start getting into Todd, you know, it'll, I could not come out for a long time. Sure. Uh, I could, I could easily lose 45 minutes or to an hour of my life. So, okay. And so then I, the other thing that I would say is that, so my third one will kind of maybe almost be a genre more than anything else. I, I, I love the American songbook. I love the work, uh, of, uh, uh, the, the sort of the great five, uh, Jerome Stern, uh, the Gershwins, mm-hmm. uh, Cole Porter, uh, Richard Rogers, both Richard Rogers uh, uh, with Hart and, and Richard Rogers with Hammerstein and Irving Berlin. I guess that's the fifth one. So, I mean, that 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 music performed by so many different people. You know, there's a singer named Nicole Henry who can just do these Gershwin songs. And it's like you've never heard the song before. She just, you know, brings something brand new to it. So uh, that's sort of the other thing that has just sort of stayed with me. I, I, I love all that music. I love, for the most part, jazz vocalists taking that music and, and doing something else. Oh, I'll do like one for extra credit, which Absolutely. is that we've been working for a long, long time. There are shows here that we've been working on for like three years and we never get them done. So one of the things we've been talking about for, I think, three years is an interview with Jimmy Webb. Okay. And Jimmy Webb, uh, who wrote Wichita Lineman and By the Time I Get to Phoenix and Galveston and Up, Up and Away and most perhaps famously or infamously MacArthur Park. Uh, but you know, I mean, the reason we haven't done this show with Jimmy Webb isn't because we don't want to do it or because he doesn't want to do it because he wants to do it. But we just have it's got to be perfect because I right. feel like Jimmy Webb is like such a very, very special uh, person as a songwriter. So I wouldn't put him, you know, in, in the same category with the three things that I just said. But, you know, he's sort of an abiding passion I do think Wichita Lineman, and that's a song that many jazz singers now have covered. It really is kind of an amazing song. Yeah, that's I absolutely love it. Those answers, like you said, very diverse. Um, and you know, I've heard you play plenty of stuff. When I was a guest on your show, I was wowed when you brought out Minor Threat. I was like, wow, <laughs> I did well, not did see the, that, that coming. <laughs> no, we did that for you. I had read your books. Yeah. So I knew, um, I thought it'd be funny because I know that you came out of that scene yeah. and that Minor Threat would have been, you know, an influence of yours. We did that just for you. I appreciate that. I'm wearing a Bad Brains t-shirt as we speak now. Uh, same genre, same area, but um, I appreciated that. So lastly, Colin, final thing we'll end on, because a lot of people don't have access or get to listen to your show. And I know this is something you discuss in many different ways. Um, But I guess last thing, we are in a very interesting time, which could be said any time. And I know you said earlier, it's hard to, to generalize a specific period. But, you know, we are looking at a very important election coming up. And we are seeing, again, mentioning that movie, The Great Hack. I can't recommend that to you enough. Like, really seeing just how much Russia played into the election and with Mueller's testimony saying it's happening right now as we speak. Um, things are, are, are very up in the air. Uh, and, and again, you could say that for any time period, any day. What do you see happening over the next 
few years over the next election cycle? What, and not just in, here in America, but in general. And I know this is conjecture. It's but you know from from the many people you've spoken with and and all the diversity that you've been surrounded by. What in your own, just for you, do you see potentially occurring? Well, so I, yeah, I had this like sort of second life as a political analyst and yeah. as a columnist for Hearst and stuff like that. And so, and and really, if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> um, I mean, n- the truth is nobody knows the answer to that question. Right. Anybody who tells you that he or she does, you should regard with a certain amount uh, of distrust because sure. this is such a volatile and unpredictable situation. And to me, the 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 concern is. I was just talking about this earlier today yeah. that we've now reached the point where everything, everything is being treated as a political question. Everything. Mm, so, yes. you know, if it's I mean, it shouldn't be political uh, about whether the Russians tried to interfere with our election. But it is. You have one side saying, you know, yes, they did. And we've got to do something about it. And you've got the other side saying this is a hyped up thing to score political points. And I mean, that's obviously also happened with climate change. Climate change should right. not be a political question, but it is. And then when it becomes a political question, you know, it's sort of the big Lebowski effect, you know, where <laughs> at the end, they said the end of the one of the conversations at the bowling alley, they say, well, that's just your opinion, man. Yeah. Well, everything is just your opinion, man. Well, climate change isn't just my opinion, man. Yes. Climate change is happening. It's visible. It's terrifying. There's yeah. no way it should be something whose existence is being debated essentially across party lines. But it is. So I'm at the point now where I feel like if, you know, we were in, you know, a, a situation like the movie Armageddon and there was a comet or an asteroid coming to Earth, we'd be having a political debate about whether that was really <laughs> happening or not. Right. You know? There's like nothing that can't be transferred into that kind uh, of back and forth. And that's that should scare people because we've yes. already crossed the line. I mean, we're not about to cross the line. We're, we're oh, already right. taking, taking things that are concrete, definable, observable uh, and documentable threats to the existence of humankind and treating them as matters of opinion and matters of political opinion. And, you know, if we can't get past that, I, I, I keep, it's almost like, you know, I almost wish aliens would invade or something because <laughs> like, it's like, we don't have any kind of common agreement about anything. You know, I, I, I like if we, so I'm, I'm now just dumping out my, my sci-fi movie references, but if we I'm had a like, nerd for that, so let's yeah, go. <laughs> like, get an Independence Day situation. I don't think Bill Pullman could get us all together. Like half <laughs> the people at the airfield were going, "Well, no, that's just crap." You know, it's just the, the Republicans say that, but the Democrats say something else. Well, no, they're like most of our cities have been wiped out, and there are these huge things the size of many buildings hovering over us right now. This is not a political question, but I feel like. <laughs> You know, I'm not sure Bill could rally us right. uh, at this point because everybody going, well, no, that's what you said. It's your, just your opinion, man. And, and, and if we can't get past that, if we can't reach a point where we can agree that, okay, so this is really bad. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, uh, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, or, or this is something, this is a goal we have to set and try to get to. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you should want us to get to this goal. You know, if we can't recover that, I, I don't think the picture is going to be very pretty uh, over the next two or three years. Now, 
possibly at the end of 2020, we come out of this with somebody who can do it. And, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure who that is. Sure. I'm, I'm probably more enthusiastic about Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren than I am about anybody else right now. Mm-hmm. Most partly because I think she's a really good explainer, yep. you know. She's a good teacher. And by the time she's through explaining something pretty complicated to you, which she can do pretty fast, you go, okay, yeah, I get that. Okay, thanks. Um, And, and you know, I don't know that that's enough for the gigantic chasm that exists between people today, but it could at least start there. And so maybe we'll come out of 2020 with a much better approach to our problems. But right now, what I see scares me and, and I don't really see the remedy. I mean, I hate to say that oh. at the end of a show about spiritual issues and stuff, which I could, you know, point to a bright light in the sky somewhere, but it, I don't see it right now. No. And, and the show keeps it real like that. So I will ask you, and I'm not a fan typically of absolutes or blanket statements. And again, this is just conjecture, but for, to sum that up from your perspective, where we stand today, which is subject to change tonight tomorrow morning best case scenario worst case scenario what do you what do you see there i feel you know there's a woody allen line at the <laughs> end of the speech where he says we come to a fork of the in the road in one direction lies terrible tragedy in the other direction utter devastation let's hope we're wise enough to choose the right path so uh, you know yeah. I mean, it's kind of like um so i you know worst case scenario look i mean I, I don't you don't even need me for this and worst case scenario we wind up more divided we might wind up so incredibly sectarian it's possible the country doesn't hold together mm. you know we see that played out and stuff like handmaid's tale right. you know i'm not saying we're saying we're going to separate it into gilead but uh, i mean you know really 10 years from now if it turned out that one group or another seceded or that california which is what it's like the fifth largest economy in the world or mm. something that california decides to be its own country and i mean stuff like that could very easily happen and and driving that probably would be climate change and and all the things that are going to come out of the hardships that will come out of climate change. And so, I mean, my worst case scenario is all that stuff. I'm not even going to say any more about my worst case scenario because it's just too depressing. And what if there's children who listen to this podcast? I mean, the best case scenario maybe goes back to a lot of the other stuff that we're talking about, which is that, you know, we have we have a language uh, we have a vocabulary of common purpose. Right. We have a vocabulary of mercy. We have a vocabulary of hope and faith. And we have a vocabulary of action to pursue those things in which we have hope and faith. I mean, it's all there. And it's there in these multiple spiritual traditions that you and I have been invoking over the past uh, hour or so. Yeah. And, and We've got it. You know, the whole language, the whole thought pro- thought process to get where we're going, whether we get there with Ram Das or Thomas More or or Thomas Merton sure. uh, or something else. You know, I mean, we we know we have all the tools. It it just to go back to the Ghostbusters thing. Yeah. It actually is all there in that pack on the back. You know, yeah. it's it's all there. But do we know how to turn it on? Do we all know how to turn uh, turn it all on and point uh, it all in the same direction? Um, uh, You know, that's that's the big question. But but it's there. We we could do it. I mean, you know, everything that we've ever been as creatures of the earth. It has included those notions of universality, uh, of commonality, 
you know, every religious tradition, even though it can t- inevitably can lead to sectarianism, yeah. you know, pretty much all of them at some point start out with this idea. No, no, well, you know, it's, we're all the same. So, you know, maybe somebody, maybe some group of people can get us pushed back in that area where we l- use the toolkit we have. So that's the best case scenario. I appreciate that. And the optimist in me, there's a saying, I don't know where it comes from, but chaos precipitates great change. I've been trying to hold on to that. And yet again, the great hack watching that Steve Bannon, in his own words, basically said like the same thing, like we need to, you know, get Trump elected to completely like separate and divide and destroy so we can rebuild from, you know, this vision, you know, of his vision and, uh, that kind of put a damper on that for me. So I'll be the one to end this conversation on a, on a bit of a somber note, but uh, that's life. You know, there's ups, there's downs, joys and terrors and beauties. And, and that's the human experience. And that's why I'm such a fan, Colin, of you and your work, your show, your writing. You are not afraid to talk about whatever it is. And uh, I really appreciate what you bring to the table in life. And being the busy man you are, I want to say thank you for being on the show, taking the time, and this was a, a really fun conversation for me to have with you. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for putting up with me, Chris. It was great. It was really fun for me. <laughs> no putting up, but I'm glad you had a good time. Thank you, Colin. Okay, thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.